Hello and welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different from the rest. Last episode was all about the second mission of St. Paul. As one of the most influential Roman citizens of all time and one of the most discussed theologians in history, he marks an inflection point in both the history of Rome and Christianity. Today we'll pick up with Paul's third mission and follow his story up until his journey to Rome. A year after Paul's second missionary journey, he set out again on his third and final mission in the year AD 53. The purpose of this mission was to strengthen the branches where the church had been established and also gather donations to relieve the Christians suffering in Jerusalem who had been enduring a famine that Agabus had prophesied 15 years earlier. Paul started off with visits to the Christians he had visited in his first and second missions those ones in central Turkey, in Galatia and Phrygia, in the cities of Derbe, Lystra, and Iconium. Then Paul continued on foot to Ephesus, the great port city. He would eventually be joined there by his best buddy Timothy and Erastus, who was another disciple. Some quick background on Ephesus. Legend has it Ephesus was founded anciently by the Amazons, a tribe of female warriors and they named the city after their queen, Ephesia. In the mid-6th century BC, Ephesus was put on the map when its king, Croesus, constructed the legendary Temple of Artemis, a structure dedicated to the Greek goddess of the hunt, chastity, childbirth, and the wild. This temple was later burned down in 356 BC by an insane person named Herostratus. In response, the Ephesians built an even bigger, more awesome temple, one that would be considered among the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon, and it would stand until A.D. 262, when the Goths would finally destroy it. The tradition of worshipping Artemis at this temple endured throughout its entire existence, even as the city passed hands from the Persians to the Seleucids, and then from the Romans to the Byzantines. The Romans brought reforms and good engineering to Ephesus, which created a golden age for the city. The Romans built the Library of Celsus, which became the third largest library in the world. Only Alexandria and Pergamum had bigger libraries. The Library of Celsus had around 12,000 scrolls. The Romans also built an enormous amphitheater, an agora, and aqueducts. They built a new business district and harbor since the sea had been receding over the years. Darn that global cooling. Anyway, with this new business district, Ephesus was able to be the linchpin between the caravans of the Orient with the sea merchants of the Western Mediterranean. As such, it became second only to Rome as a cosmopolitan center of culture and commerce. When Paul arrived, he immediately noticed several problems with the city. First of all, 12 Christian disciples hadn't received the Holy Ghost to go along with their baptisms. He had to rectify that by rebaptizing them and giving them the Holy Ghost. A second problem was that his usual teaching spot, the synagogue, banned him after just three months. To rectify this, Paul rented out a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus, 
where he did his daily teachings. This went on for two years, and the book of Acts says that these lectures became so popular that, quote, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, close quote. Now, in that time, that was approximately two million people who lived in that province. So that's a lot of people hearing those lectures. The Hall of Tyrannus must have been somewhere in the commercial center of the city or near the gymnasium to get this much traffic and attention. A third problem in the city was the obsession with the occult. The city of Ephesus was rife with witchcraft and demonic activity and pumpkin spice lattes. A group of Levites, hearing about Paul's miracles and power, attempted to cast out an evil spirit using Paul's name, but not having his power or authority. They cried out at a man possessed of a demon, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out! The demon said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the scriptures say, The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This event, strangely enough, actually helped many of the Greek and Jewish Ephesians to realize that they had spent way too much time fiddling with witchcraft, and this actually gave Paul an added boost of credibility as one who had authority to exercise demons. So on their own, these Ephesians decided to burn all of their witchcraft books and scrolls, a library worth 50,000 drachma. A drachma is equal to a day's wages, so imagine half a million dollars of Ouija boards and Barnes and Noble Wicca books up in flames. Once many converts had joined the church and those three issues were largely resolved, Paul eventually felt like it was a good time to leave Ephesus. He wanted to fulfill the promise the Lord had given him that he would be able to preach the gospel in Rome. So he sent off his companions, Timothy and Erastus, and he made preparations for himself to eventually leave, but some of the Ephesians did, want, did not want to let him out so easy. You see, the silversmiths of Ephesus had grown extraordinarily wealthy, making statues and coins and souvenirs of Artemis and selling them to the pilgrims who visited the temple. Paul's efforts to turn the people away from idolatry had been so successful that these silver businesses had suffered. They wanted their revenge. They wanted Paul dead. You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, a smith named Demetrius complained at a gathering of smiths in the amphitheater. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When the other smiths heard this, they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in uproar. The smiths became the core of a massive and ever-growing angry mob. Most of the mob members did not know why they were there, though. Multiple factions were shouting different contradictory slogans. Everyone was trying to push the mob their own way. The Jews actually sent a guy forward to take charge, 
but once the mob figured out he was a Jew, they yelled at him for two hours. Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, they kept shouting at him. The mob eventually seized two of the Christian disciples. Hearing about the peril, Paul wanted to offer himself to the crowd to save his friends. The other disciples and Paul's friends in the provincial government begged Paul not to do this and to flee instead. Paul did take their advice, but he barely escaped with his life. One of the city officials confronted the mob, and I think you'll find his speech rather interesting. He said, <clears throat> Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. And just like that, this bureaucrat with his nerdy little speech managed to calm the crowd down and get them to go home. He's the real MVP. Paul decided to let things cool down for a few months by hanging out in Greece before finally reuniting with his friends back in Troas. There, Paul stayed with other disciples like Aristarchus, Timothy, Luke, and many others. After partaking of the Eucharist, or sacrament, Paul gave a long sermon to the disciples and the Christians in town on the third floor of a building. His message went on past midnight. A poor sap named Eutychus fell asleep during this sermon and fell out of the window. The young man died, and Paul actually had to bring him back to life. Uh, don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. This may be the first and only time someone had to be brought back from the dead by the same person who had accidentally killed them. I've always related to this story because I, like you, Eutychus, once fell asleep during a long, boring lecture that my professor gave in Troas. I think all of us have had a similar thing happen before. Anyway, these companions, they decided to sail and preach in Assos, but Paul decided that he should go there by foot. And after this journey on foot, Paul grew a bit strange and distant. He suddenly had an urgent need to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Pentecost. The need was so urgent, in fact, that they decided to skip past Ephesus. Regretting not being able to visit Ephesus again and becoming more and more fatalist, Paul summoned the leaders of Ephesus to meet with him in Miletus on his way back to Jerusalem. Once he met with them, he said, I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations. I kept back nothing. I now go to the holy city. I don't know what's going to happen there, but I know that it's where I am to be. I will never see any of you again. The elders, upon hearing this, all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more. 
the disciples sailed down the coastline, visiting other congregations. At Tyre, the Christians there, along with their wives and children, urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul assured them that he had to go, and so, in a last act of love and support, the Christians went with Paul to the beach, and together they prayed, kneeling on the sand. Finally, Paul boarded the ship for one last jaunt to Caesarea Maritima, the provincial capital. There he disembarked and headed to the disciple Philip's house. While visiting Philip, the old prophet Agabus returned as well. Agabus was the one who had stated the prophecy 15 years earlier that there would be a famine in Jerusalem, and now that had been fulfilled. Now, during this meeting with Agabus, he decided to act a bit strangely. He took off Paul's belt and tied up Paul's hands and feet with it. He said cryptically, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Gasping in shock, the other disciples urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered them, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Luke writes, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. In Jerusalem, Paul took walks around the city with his Gentile friend Trophimus to visit with other Christian disciples. One of their first meetings was with James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem congregation. This wasn't James, the brother of John. This was James, the brother of Jesus. Yes, that Jesus. You may remember James from last episode. He was the one whose men had dissuaded Peter from eating with Gentiles, and he was the one in the episode before that who had announced the final decision of the Jerusalem Council regarding the Jewish kosher rules that Gentiles needed to follow. James became the spirit animal and cheerleader of the Jewish members of the faith, while Paul was the spirit animal of the Gentiles. Even though this naturally led to some disagreements, it is clear that the two of them had enormous respect for each other and that they were teaching the same gospel. If you're like me and want to learn more about the relationship between these two, there's an interesting article by Greg Carey, professor of New Testament at Lancaster Theological Seminary that I have linked in the description. During the meeting between these two great minds, James explained that while Paul was busy in the Mediterranean, Thousands of devout Jews had become Christians here in Jerusalem. Even some of the Pharisees and temple priests had converted. James went on to explain, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law? They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Well, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. So what James is saying essentially is, for Paul to restore his credibility and the credibility of his Gentile converts, he needed to take four guys with him to the temple where they could all ritually purify themselves and complete their Nazarite vows. Quick note, 
The Nazarite vow was a voluntary pledge to God to serve him in an elevated capacity for a limited period of time. The sign of the vow was having long, unruly hair like Samson. To shave it off and offer sacrifices at the temple would terminate the vow. Paul would help these men do this by escorting them to the temple, worshiping with them, purchasing all the animals they needed to make the sacrifices, and then cutting their hair. Easy enough. How could this possibly go wrong? And so Paul went up with the men, and for seven days they washed themselves, they offered sacrifices, and they prayed in the temple. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place, they shouted. So let's break down this accusation. Teaching against the law of Moses, well, yeah, that's pretty clear. Paul was very upfront about his opinions on the law. He wrote to the people of Ephesus, quote, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so clearly Paul has been teaching against the law of Moses. But what about this claim of taking a Greek into the temple and defiling it? Was one of the four Nazarites secretly a Gentile in disguise? Well, no. It, it turns out a lot of the Jews had seen Paul walking around the city with Trophimus, and they claimed without evidence that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple, past the barrier and warning signs that literally said, quote, No foreigner is to enter within the temple enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death, close quote. I don't think Paul brought Trophimus past those signs and those barriers. And sure enough, Paul hadn't done this, but this didn't stop the temple patrons from being whipped up into an angry frenzy. They dragged Paul out of the temple, and they tried to kill him, since you can't murder someone inside the temple. Seeing the commotion, Roman troops poured out of their fortress, which was strategically placed right next to the temple mount, when the rioters saw the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, and Paul submitted himself to the custody of the soldiers. The Romans took Paul up to the top of their fortress to interrogate him. They asked Paul if he was an Egyptian terrorist on their watch list. Paul responded, uh, No, I'm actually a Jew and Roman citizen. Finding out that Paul was a citizen, the soldiers immediately unshackled him, stopped interrogating him, and treated him much more kindly. The commander even allowed Paul to stand on the fortress balcony and address the angry mob below. Paul spoke to the crowd and bore his heartfelt testimony and conversion story. But once he mentioned that Jesus had called him to preach to the Gentiles, the crowd started booing him. They shouted, Rid the earth of him! He's not fit to live! Now, the Roman commander, not wanting to violate the rights of a Roman citizen, but also wanting to respect the autonomy of his subjects, sent for the Sanhedrin to gather and make their judgment on Paul. 
The Sanhedrin was the leadership body of the Jewish faith, and it had both Pharisees and Sadducees among its ranks. Paul immediately pounced on the differences between these sects. He said, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I am on trial because I've been preaching about the doctrine of the Pharisees that we can hope for a resurrection from the dead. Now, the Pharisees on the council immediately took Paul's side, and the Sadducees immediately began yelling at them. The assembly was completely divided, and the arguments soon grew violent. The commander worried that Paul would be torn to pieces, and so he sent Paul to the barracks under protected guard. The Sanhedrin ordered that Paul be taken back to them to stand trial the next morning. The commander, hesitating, agreed to this, and the Sanhedrin went off to make the arrangements. But instead of preparing witnesses and lawyers and evidence like a normal trial, the Sanhedrin instead contracted 40 assassins to murder Paul. When the Roman commander got wind of the conspiracy, he sent Paul with an armed contingent of cavalry back to Caesarea, which was the provincial capital. There, a real trial was held with the Sanhedrin, witnesses, and lawyers. Paul gave his own defense, very bold, and he made it clear that his accusers could not prove anything and that his faith was perfectly legal. The Romans respected ancient peoples who had continually worshipped their ancient gods, and so, as such, they respected Judaism. But they didn't have much tolerance for new religions, and so that's why in Paul's defense here, he spends a lot of time placating the Romans and assuring them that Christianity isn't a new religion, but just a continuation of Judaism. The trial ended and the governor, Felix, announced that he would make the final call. Felix simply wanted Paul to give him a suitable bribe and then let him go, but Paul never gave him the pleasure. Without a bribe to release him and being too cowardly to execute Paul, Felix had Paul remain on house arrest in Caesarea for two years up until the next governor's term. The next governor, Festus, likewise was reluctant to release Paul. The Sanhedrin offered to hold another trial in Jerusalem, and Festus was tempted to be rid of him. Unfortunately, this trial was another trap. Assassins had been hired, and Paul was supposed to die. Paul avoided this whole plot altogether when he told the governor, essentially, no, I don't want to go to Jerusalem for, for trial. Festus, he was taken aback, and so Paul explained, I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar! A silence fell over the room. An appeal to Caesar was a serious demand and taken at a only at a total point of desperation. Finally, Festus shouted, You have appealed to Caesar? Then to Caesar you will go. Festus met with his friend, a Jewish leader, and the late King Herod's son, King Agrippa, in order to get some help building the case against Paul. Festus admitted to Agrippa, When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points to dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. 
Having Paul appear before Caesar without any coherent accusations or crime laid against him would make Festus look very dumb. Agrippa was sympathetic to his friend's plight and offered to meet with Paul along with some other officials to help draw up some ideas for the case. Festus and Agrippa were dumbfounded at the defense that Paul offered them, written down in Acts chapter 26. In fact, at the end of the defense, Agrippa remarked, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am. Well, except for these chains. As the officials left the room, they came to the consensus that Paul was indeed innocent. Agrippa remarked to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But that wasn't in the cards for Paul. The Lord had told him he would be his witness in Rome and even before Caesar. Paul saw this appeal as his opportunity and he was going to seize it even if it killed him. our episode today next week will be the final episode on paul i promise we will cover his journey to rome his epistles the evil emperor nero and the consequences of paul's actions and teachings thank you so much for your continued listening if you enjoyed this episode leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend for more information on this topic, check out the new Oxford Annotated Bible Commentary for Acts chapters 18 to 26 and the Carta Bible Atlas, as well as the links in the description. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.